0: Hello again, everyone. Sorry for the uh, technical difficulties. One of our panelists is still trying to log in. Um, my name is Kevin Navratil. If you don't know me, I'm a political science professor at Moraine Valley. And I am also the democracy commitment coordinator. And um, one of the things that um, I do in my position as the democracy commitment coordinator is try to plan events and um try to promote civic learning and uh, civic literacy on campus. And um, I'm very happy that two of my colleagues who um, we've worked together so many times in the past, uh, Dr. Darren Schreck and uh, Professor Mary Faflis Dunkel, um, we have worked together on, I don't know, six different um, election cycles. Um, presidential and uh, congressional elections, and uh, primaries, and the general election, and um, so it's just a pleasure to work with them, and um, I'm really glad that they're um, willing to share their insights onto the 2020 election. And um, uh, I want to thank all of you for uh, the attendees. I can see that we already have about 60 people who are logged in. So. Um, Thank you, thank you for coming. It's an exciting time with this 2020 election. And um, what I wanted to do um, before I turn it over to um, my colleagues is just let you know that there is under Canvas a chat function for you to share uh, any comments or questions that you have. Um, The idea was that each one of us would take 10 or 15 minutes or so um, to provide a brief overview of our thoughts on the 2020 election and then um, uh, open it up for questions and comments. So um, with that in mind, um, I would like to turn it over to um, my colleague um, Darren Schreck and see if he is ready to start.
1: So I thank you for uh, everybody for attending uh, this uh, Webex uh, panel discussion. We have a uh, an interesting and exciting election coming up next week. And uh, start off by saying, hopefully you are registered to vote. Hopefully you've uh, voted already or are planning on voting next week. And if uh, judging by the lines that I've already seen in local, Um, polling areas early on. You want to make sure that you uh, give yourself some time because the lines are quite long. Uh, And once we have all of the uh, voting facilities opening, we know that there are going to be long lines there too. So give yourself some time next Tuesday. Uh, Like I said, uh, thank you for coming. And uh, where I'm going to start with this election uh, discussion is basically talking about the U.S. Senate races, our Uh, House races, and uh, some Illinois contests as well. Uh, Right now, we have in the United States Senate, we have 53 Republicans and 43 Democrats uh, uh, seated. Two of those, uh, I should uh, clarify that two of those who call themselves Democrats are independents, but they work with those Democratic leaders of the Senate. Uh, This election, we have 35 seats, that are contested. We would say that 11 of those seats are safe Democratic seats, which means that there's pretty much no chance that a Republican can win those. And then there are 10 safe seats for Republicans where we would say the same thing that Democrats really can't win those either. The current tea leaves out there say that there will be a Democratic majority. Uh, In order for that to happen, Uh, the Democrats would have to win at least four seats with a Joe Biden victory and at least five seats with a Trump victory. And I'll explain the difference between the two in a second. Where there are competitive seats, uh, right now, there are what we would say uh, seven, let me count that again, one, two, three, four, seven toss-up seats on the Republican side. All of those seats are Republican, I should say. Iowa, Maine, Montana, North Carolina, South Carolina, and there are two contested seats in Georgia this year. Right now, we would say that on the Republican side, uh, there is a potential for one pickup in Alabama that is currently held by a Democrat by the name of Doug Jones. He um, got that seat uh, basically because he had a fringe Republican opponent when he was running. Uh, For the Senate, uh, this is likely to turn to the Republican side this time around. Uh, Tommy Tuberville, who was a former uh, college football coach, is very popular in the state and looks to be uh, the victor this time around. On the Democratic side, it seems like there would be two pickups right now in Colorado. uh, Cory Gardner, the Republican, is running against former Governor uh, uh, John Hickenlooper. And it looks like uh, Hickenlooper has the lead in that race, Martha McSally in Arizona, a Republican who was appointed to that position, looks like she is on the ropes and losing in the polls to Mark Kelly, uh, a popular Democrat in the state and husband of former uh, Congresswoman Gabby Giffords, uh, who you might remember was uh, shot uh, at a campaign stop uh, a few years back. Uh, That we also have um, what we would say there are three Republican seats that might go Democratic in Alaska, Kansas, and Texas. And there's one Democratic seat in Michigan that might go Republican, but those are what I would say are on the fringe. Uh, The Republicans this time around knew they had a lot of seats to defend and uh, they've had to defend them with a lot of money infused in those states but they've also run up against a huge Democratic um, fundraising machine in states like South Carolina and North Carolina and Iowa, especially Maine with Susan Collins, the Republican who uh, looks to have a competitive race against Sarah Gideon. Um, those states look like they're trending Democratic, but that's what the polls say and what happens on election day might be totally different. So the Democrats have the upper hand in getting that majority. It just depends on how many people show up and vote and vote in those down ballot races. Uh, Something less exciting is what's going on in the U.S. House. The Democrats have a majority going in. Not much will change here. There's probably going to be a greater Democratic majority uh, coming out of Election Day. Right now, the current prediction is, is that Democrats hold 228 seats. Uh, 181 seats on the Republican side and 26 toss-ups. Of those toss-ups, uh, most of them are Republican, and there's the one uh, libertarian seat that was Republican at one point. So Republicans have a lot to defend, and if these numbers all go this way, Democrats could have at least maybe 240 seats in the U.S. House. There's pretty much no chance that the Republicans are going to have a uh, a Republican majority in the House, probably for quite some time. Uh, and then there's Illinois. Uh, we have uh, Dick Durbin, who's been a senator for four terms. He is the second ranking, uh, highest-ranking Democrat in the Senate. He has raised $6.7 million. He's running against an ex-Lake uh, County Sheriff, uh, Mark Curran, who's only raised about $314,000. The Republicans have a pretty weak bench in this state uh, in terms of who's coming up in the ranks to compete in races like this. And I also threw Willie Wilson up there. I like Willie Wilson, personally. But uh, he's a fun guy. He also created his own political party called the WWP, the Willie Wilson Party. The only reason why I threw him up there as an independent is because he's uh, raised—he's actually spending $3 million of his own money to run. Uh, In the United States House, um, there are 18 seats that we have in this state. Only one is competitive. That's downstate Illinois 13 uh, um, with uh, Rodney Davis a Republican who uh, has a challenge uh, from his left. Uh, The Illinois General Assembly, all 118 House seats are uh, being contested, I guess you could say, or at least on the ballot. Only nine of them are open seats and 20 out of the 59 Senate seats are uh, up for grabs and six of them are open. And that brings us to if you picked up your mail or watched television in the last uh, 10 minutes, let's say, you probably have heard about our constitutional amendment. Our constitutional amendment is about our graduated income tax. Right now, everybody is paying a flat 4.95% uh, income tax. With this graduated income tax proposal, the new tax brackets would uh, essentially not change anybody's tax rate. If you're if you're making between 100,000 and 249,000 dollars a year, you would stay at 4.95. People who are making less than 100,000 dollars, you would be um, paying a rate of either zero or 4.90, and then on top of that, above $250,000, we get our graduated income tax. $250,000 to about $500,000 is 7.75, $500,000 to a million is 7.85, and above a million dollars, you'd be paying 7.95 in your income tax. The difference between what we do now with our income tax and let's say somebody who's making a million dollars, right now you pay a rate. You don't necessarily pay 4.95 on your income. You pay it off a portion of your income. For anybody making over a million dollars, you will be paying 7.95% on your income directly. So there's the big difference in, in the the shift between a flat and what we might call a fair tax. The proponents and opponents, $56 million has been spent by Governor Pritzker alone uh, in terms of pushing for a fair tax. He would say, and proponents would say, that we need to fill the budget gap. Over $60 million has been spent in total uh, in favor of uh, the fair tax in marketing. Other states have a sliding scale or progressive or uh, graduated income tax system. So, Illinois saying, why not us? Uh, Arguments against it, conservative groups have spent about $50 million. They believe this will drive businesses out of Illinois. They believe that we already have uh, a spending problem in Illinois, not a taxing problem. And then they also would argue that once the wealthy well runs dry, the taxes will increase on the middle class. So, those are the arguments favor and against it uh, on both sides. In order to pass it, you need 60% on the question to support it or 50% plus one on the number of people who voted in the election. Either way, uh, it looks like it's favoring towards the passage at this point based on recent polls, and we don't poll very much in the state on constitutional questions, but in a recent um, Illinois Springfield poll which was taken in late September, about 67% favored the passage of the amendment. Okay, so Uh, That's it for me at this point, and I'll throw it back to Kevin, and uh, later I'll I'll take some questions about some of these slides.
0: Hey, thanks so much, Darren, and um, I look forward to talking more about some of the uh, points you raised about the Senate races and the um, the constitutional amendment to change the tax structure. I think that's uh, something that we should dive into a little deeper. Uh, At this point, uh, Mary, are you ready to all right. I'm going to turn it over to my colleague. She wears a lot of hats. Uh, she is a political science professor, a history professor, and a sociology professor. So, Mary faflees Go ahead.
2: Thanks, Kevin. And am I able to share uh, my... Oh, I... Okay, I see this on here. Are you able to see that, folks? Yes? Yes. Okay, awesome. I can okay, see Okay, so first of all, it's thank you so much, Kevin. Um it's nice to be Kevin and, and Darren and I joke that we have our getting the band back together. Um it's a little nervous for me to be up here prog- prognosticating because after the last election 2016, we were also wrong about what happened. But uh it's always uh it's so fun to be with colleagues and I have to say I miss uh being in the library with you guys uh all together. But at least this is this is a good second uh second choice. I also want to point out I am wearing a not a tied shirt, in case any of you saw this, but I'm wearing a vote shirt. So I'm, I'm encouraging every single one of you to get out there and vote, please. So it's very important. But I wanted to uh, talk to you a little bit about the judiciary because this is a, a subject that whenever I teach American government is my favorite. Um, and obviously this is, this is one where we have been doing a lot of talking about recently. I wanted to focus on the, on the judiciary because we're obviously just last night, so many of you may have heard that um, Justice Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed uh, as the latest justice. That would be the, uh, Donald Trump's third Supreme Court justice pick. And so, I want to talk about a couple different things: um, the idea that why has the Supreme Court in recent years become so contentious? Um, the fact that the Supreme Court really has not been something that's on the radar of most Americans. You know, if you did polling before, you could that, that was the, the the branch of government that most Americans could identify the least. And if you ask them to identify at least one justice, most of them could not uh, before they could identify John Roberts. That was usually the one, he's the guy that's right here in the middle, the chief justice. Uh, but lately, I think that those, that number has added with, uh, in recent cases with, with people like Brett Kavanaugh and probably now with uh, Amy Cloney Barrett and I'll talk hopefully a little bit about Starry decisis. If we get, if we have some time talking about some of the, um, like her recent uh, confirmation hearing. Okay. I just wanted to point out a couple things here, because you're hearing a lot in the news about with the upcoming election, what happens if one candidate wins versus the other. And we'll talk more about this, too, the, I'm sure with my colleagues. But so who decides but how many courts there are, the number of them, the justices there are, et cetera. That's up to Congress to decide that. That's written in the Constitution. Now, over the years, the number has varied. The map that you're looking at that you see before you has got uh, labels on there of the U.S. district courts as well as the the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. And so there are three layers, basically, to the, the federal judiciary. You've got the U.S. District Courts, there are 94 districts. Then you've got the Appeals Court, which is the one that's kind of in the middle, which it's where people go to to like hear, basically, appeal the case, right? But you don't retry it. They just listen to, they review the lower case and decide whether or not what was done before was done correctly. And then the last Court of Appeals, of course, is at the Supreme Court. Now, the justices uh, have varied over, over the years. When we first started out uh, with George Washington, there were six Supreme Court justices. John Adams lowered it to five. It went back up to, for a while, it was at seven. For one, at one point, it was up to 10. Uh, and now it's been at, at a steady nine for a while now. So that number, the idea that the number cannot shift, the number has shifted over the years, but it has not shifted in a long time. Now, in recent years, the issue of these, the hearings becoming so contentious is, is one of the, one of the things that we need to talk about. Um, okay. So the guy at the top of the slide there is, is is named Robert Bork and Robert Bork, his name has become a verb, uh, amongst conservatives to be known as you've been Borked. Uh, and that refers to that you basically have been, have had your uh, reputation slandered. Uh, Robert Bork was nominated by Ronald Reagan in 1987 to fill a Supreme court vacancy. And his, uh, his, it, his, he was given a hearing and it, or a confirmation, uh, um, hearing and it was denied. Uh, the, the Senate turned, uh, uh, voted against him for a number of reasons. Uh, the main ones were a lot of the, based on the writings that he had done in previous years, things about segregation, um, saying that actually against, uh, the 1964 Civil Rights, um, act, um, things also about, like, about, uh, um, equal rights for women. Um, and things of that nature. So, and and there are others as well. Oh, he also uh, actually, interestingly, was against the case of 1965, Griswold versus Connecticut regarding uh, birth control. So, but but that became one of those issues that that, that conservatives kind of talk about a lot today about why the hearings now have become so contentious. Um, The next one was Clarence Thomas. And Clarence Thomas is, if you watched the news yesterday, he's actually the one who swore in Amy Coney Barrett. And he was accused of sexual harassment in 1991 by Anita Hill. We could do an entire panel just on that. Um, and then of course in 2018 uh, was, the, was the case of Brett Kavanaugh where he was nominated and was accused by uh, uh, Christine Blase Ford of uh, a professor of uh, sexually assaulting her at uh, many years ago while they were in early college or I believe maybe in high school. So those hearings then took on this, this air of, of great contention and obviously um, and, and obviously drama, right? There's a lot of drama on TV. Now in more recent years, um, also to add to that controversy, you've got some other people here. So, so the guy at the, on my left here, my left would be Antonin Scalia. So Anton Scalia died in uh, 2016, February, 2016, sorry. And so that was an election year, if you might recall. Uh, in November. And so when he died, the uh, Republican-controlled Senate claimed that because it was an election year that the voters of the United States should be able to decide who fills that vacancy. And President Obama, at the time, uh, nominated a guy by the name of Merrick Garland, who was a very moderate centrist, who is a very moderate centrist uh, judge for the vacancy. He was never given a confirmation hearing. Uh, Flash forward now to 2020. Ruth Bader Ginsburg died in, in September of 2020, and, uh, and, and now the, the rhetoric, of course, uh, has, has changed. And now it's been claimed that, that you know, the idea that uh, they, what happened in 2016 no longer applies in 2020. And there was this concern about getting Amy Coney Barrett uh, confirmed as soon as possible. I think largely because of what Darren, uh, Professor Shrek referred to earlier, the concern that they might lose the Senate, um, in which case then that, you know, that the opportunity is gone. And of course the presidency to appoint more justices. Now, Trump has had probably the biggest impact that you're gonna see moving forward. And I always find it ironic that people know the least about this branch because this is the branch that affects your life on a daily basis. And most people don't even realize it based on the cases that they take on or don't take on, right? Uh, Trump has had a huge impact on the federal judiciary. About 25% of of, of appointees have come from him just in a four-year time span. Um, I I won't read the numbers to you, but you can see them right in front of you. Um, He still has about 30 vacancies on the U.S. district court level that he's not filled. Uh, There are zero vacancies on the Court of Appeals. That's a much smaller um, amount of courts. And then he's been able to appoint three. To the U.S. Supreme Court, so three in, in one and one four-year ter- or one you know four-year term is, is pretty good, um, and that's largely because of the guy to my right, which is Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, whose biggest uh, it is said that his his legacy, what he wants his legacy to be, is how many justices he can appoint to the judiciary and therefore impact legislation moving forward and the way that that impact is 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 interpreted. But remember, if you if you're talking about the three different branches, it's the judicial branch that interprets the law right? They don't execute it. They don't make it. They interpret it. They determine what is and what is not constitutional. And it's a great power. So if you could appoint justices from, and I hate to use this word, but from your side, let's say, then moving forward, then you have the the, the power to maybe shape a lot of that legislation or perhaps strike down a lot of that legislation. Okay. So uh, next week, uh, depending on who wins, hopefully we know next week, God willing, uh, so if Trump wins, he's going to be able to finish filling out those vacancies. There might be some more vacancies on the Supreme Court. Who knows? If Biden wins, there's been a lot of talk that you may have heard about uh, some what might happen now, because there's there's a feeling amongst Democrats that, that there's been an unfair treatment. Uh, the Amy Coney Barrett, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, issue has been, is, is, is angered a lot of liberals, and they want to see some change. One of the, su- the suggestions has been court packing. Again, uh, Congress has the authority to increase the amount of justices that are on the court. so if they want to in theory, they can. The question is, will they? Joe Biden is kind of a an institutionalist. he's more of a, a moderate centrist. I don't think he's necessarily too crazy about that idea, but he's definitely getting some um, some pressure on him from the the liberal uh, uh, part part of the party that wants to see that happen. Um, but there are other reforms besides simply court packing, and he's he's kind of uh, vacillated on coming on and saying directly why it, whether he will or he will not, um, and it, basically saying that because no matter what he says, it's going to be a story regardless. Um, that's that's his his response to it, uh, and obviously, if he were to say that yes, he would, that would become it would become a huge story. But other reforms have also been suggested. One was uh, touted by um, uh, mayor of former mayor of South in Indiana, Pete Buttigieg which is the idea of reforming the court by adding five justices appointed by by conservatives, by Republicans, five justices appointed by Democrats, and then those 10 justices have to decide unanimously on appointing five more. And then so you'd have a total of 15 justices on the court that would be able to make decisions that therefore might be a bit more fair, and then we wouldn't have this kind of back and forth politicization of the court uh, which is something that John Roberts, the chief justice, I think, in recent years has been very concerned about. In the meantime, Darren, did you have anything maybe you wanted to comment on the stuff I talked about? Anything you wanted to add? Or
1: Yeah, I was going to ask you that. Do you think any of this is going to play into the election itself? Because we already have over, I think, 60 million people who have already voted. So do you <laughs> think this is like a uh, the court is is a, like a priority issue or on the top of everybody's mind?
2: I'm glad you asked that because it's interesting. I mean, for, for conservatives, of course, this was something that they said that in 2016 helped push uh, Donald Trump over the edge to get, to get people to vote for him. Even a lot of them, you know, who maybe had some hesitation about voting for him did so because of that very issue. He promised them justices. He gave them a list of the justices that were from the Federalist um, Society that, were, that he had that he was planning to appoint. But now this year, it seems to be the reverse uh where uh, uh studies studies have shown that that uh democrats are very much energized, especially more of a, the liberal wing of the party, by the by the court issue. Um and very concerned about the fact that that uh you know, should should Joe Biden lose, uh and and anybody, you know, let's face it, there are a couple of justices on there who are are older. And if something were to happen, if they were either to retire or um Something else were to happen, he would have the ability to, to appoint more. Right. Uh, so it, I, I definitely think that for some people, I think it's become more. And I think the good thing that's come out of this maybe is that people are maybe paying attention to it more. Um, at least that's from my, from my perspective. I'm glad about that.
1: And, you know, I think one other thing that comes out from all of this is the, the idea, let's say that somehow that Joe Biden wins Texas, and wins mm-hmm. all of the other states that everybody believes he's going to win, like North Carolina and things like that. There's a possibility that he could win the top 15 most populated states in our union. Mm-hmm. And he would end up having the, the, the support of a majority of the people in this country from, let's mm-hmm. just say, where they live in the state. Mm-hmm. When you talk about the, the court system in general, it's almost as if McConnell knew that, you know what, the, the, the support the Republican Party was having was dwindling over the years. So he had to make sure that there was a, 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 one of the branches of government would always represent his frame of thinking mm-hmm. for, you know, for a long period of time. And what I'm getting at is, is that we could end up having people show up to the ballot box and believe they have majority rule. But it will come down to five people on the Supreme Court who will decide for the rest of the country or what the laws are.
2: Yes, yes.
1: And so you have this majority rule, but you also have this. In reality, it's the minority that's running the country.
2: Right. Right. That's why I find that the the reform that I, I don't know if it was Pete Buttigieg's actual idea. He may have gotten it from you know a study or from something else, but. I think that idea is very appealing, just the idea of restoring some kind of balance to the court, because, uh-huh. again, it has become so politicized and it's it's concerning. I saw a question pop up um, on the screen briefly that asked why was uh, President Trump able to appoint so many uh, justices uh, during his tenure? It's just one of those things that happened. He just got really lucky that there were tons of vacancies between people retiring um, and I think that happened also even during the the first Bush's era, where just if you just kind of get into that wave where at that point where people are 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 just retiring off the bench or if they pass away, because remember, these are lifetime appointments, then there are openings. And the other thing I should mention that's probably even bigger than that is the fact that the Senate, the Republican-controlled Senate, had held up quite a number of seats that were Barack Obama's uh, to appoint and did not allow him to fill those seats because of of, you know, techniques that were kept from allowing him to pack, to, to bring on his own people onto the court. There was another question. Did you see that, Darren? I didn't. Uh...
1: Yeah, the question is asked, did I, meant, did we mention anything, if there would be a likely Democratic or Republican majority? Uh, one thing that we did mention early on, uh, and that's a good question, is the, the likelihood of it being a Democratic majority is, is greater than the Republicans holding on to the majority at this point. Um, As I mentioned, there's one Democratic seat that will probably go Republican, but then all of the rest that are currently held by Republicans are up for grabs Uh, two lean pretty much on the Democratic side. I know that Republicans stopped campaigning in Colorado for Cory Gardner. Uh, John Hickenlooper was always a a popular uh, governor of that state. Uh, He tried running for president, Uh, got his name out there. And I think in a way he was testing the waters to see if he should run for the Senate at the same time. Uh, I think Susan Collins is on the ropes. Uh, uh, Tom Tillis of North Carolina is on the ropes. And the interesting thing about Tom Tillis, a Republican, he's running against a gentleman by the name of Cal Cunningham, who in the last few weeks uh, was was texting a, a woman that he was having a relationship with that was not his wife. And then his poll numbers went up. It didn't make any sense. So uh, that's how much, like, I guess you could say that, that Tom Tillis was unpopular, that people were willing to look at, you know, Mary and I are, you know, we're not saying our age, but we're old enough to remember that if something like this came out, it was an automatically disqualifier for somebody to run for office. So nowadays, somebody could have a relationship with somebody outside their marriage and their their support goes up. It, mm-hmm. it makes absolutely no sense. But I think that has a lot to do with the current climate of our politics. With It just goes all the way from the top down, all the way to our local level that, you know what, we're just, there's the population is just fed up at this mm-hmm. point. And, and we're willing to look at people's personal lives and push it to the side and just say, are we going to get back on the straight and narrow at this point? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I saw that, too. And I was like, because hmm, most of the voters said that I think it's more discussed with Tom Tillis and also with Donald Trump and his and Tillis's support for Trump. Um, I see another question. Isn't it normal to confirm a new judge in an election year if the president and Senate are the same party? I mean, is it is it normal? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 but it's also the Constitution also says that there's nothing that says that a president cannot appoint a justice if it's an election year. There's no uh-huh. wording in the Constitution that says that a president cannot appoint one. Um, so, I mean, that we, but that was the that was the reason used to keep uh, uh, Merrick Garland to not even give him a confirmation hearing. It would have been different uh-huh. if they would given him a hearing and then said, okay, we don't want to confirm him. That's one thing, but. You know, to claim that you're angry about Robert Bork not being given—you know, Robert Bork was given a hearing. Unfortunately, he was turned down. But at this, you know, Merrick Garland was not given was not given a hearing.
1: And, and in the difference, you know, we're going back to the Robert Bork and and Clarence Thomas period. I mean, this was a time when Robert Bork was voted down because he actually answered his questions and he talked about his, yes. his views. And and nowadays we have confirmation hearings that are like confirmation hearings light. They where questions don't even have to be answered. So Robert Bork's problem, whether you're liberal or conservative, it it has nothing to do with it. His problem was is that he actually told everybody his views on issues. We don't know what the views are, uh, you know, in a in a question and answer period from Amy Coney Barrett, whether you're a liberal or Democrat questions weren't answered right right right. pretty important ones too but that's what a confirmation hearing always was about i ask you answer and you Mm -hmm. answer fully Mm -hmm. and that hasn't happened in in recent years Mm -hmm. so
0: i just those excellent responses i think i finally figured it out now with my presentation um but to that question that was raised about so I think constitutionally, yes, the president has the power to nominate um, a Supreme Court nominee, and, and the Senate certainly has um, the power to approve that. I think what we really need to think about, it's really the norms. Um, back when um, Justice Scalia passed away with around 10 or 11 months left of the Obama presidency, um, really before the, the primaries had really started. Um, the the norm by Republicans that they established was that during an election year, they were not going to consider, they were not going to have a vote on Merrick Garland, somebody who George W. Bush considered um, nominating to the Supreme Court. They basically just said, no, it's an election year. The American people need to decide. Um, and people like Lindsey Graham, who... Um, is a chair of the Judiciary Committee basically said, you can use my own words against me. Mm-hmm. And so they created that norm. Um, it isn't in the Constitution. Um, uh, so I think some of the pushback is, is more along those lines. Um, I, I personally think, you know, the other thing to kind of think about, this, this gets a little bit into inside baseball. You know, Donald Trump won the Electoral College he won it by 306 votes. Um, He has has now a third of the Supreme Court. And one way of looking at that is like, for every 102 electoral college votes he earned, he was able to, you know, for every Supreme Court person he nominated, it was represents 102 electoral college votes. Whereas for um, Bill Clinton, it was he nominated two members. And so between his two elections, it would be like 374 electoral college votes per Supreme Court member. And Obama would be around 350. So it's just a for somebody who lost the popular vote to have one third of the Supreme Court, um, and and the extreme Supreme Court members are 48, 52, and 53. So they're likely to be around for the next 50 years, 40 years, maybe 50 years. I think that's what some of the pushback is. Um, But with with my portion, what I wanted to cover a little bit about, you know, Mary, Mary nailed it earlier with we are at least her and I are not good predictors of who's going to win an election. Um, I think in four years ago, we both predicted Hillary Clinton to win. And I'll talk about some of the reasons that as political scientists, we we rely on survey research in many of the national polls as well as statewide polls. And I think political convention assumed that Hillary Clinton was going to win. And here's one reason why. Um, From uh, 1992 until 2012, there is 18 states that you see shaded in blue plus the District of Columbia that had voted collectively um, for Democratic candidates um, in this um, time period, there has never been 18 states voting together for the same political party um, since uh, 1828. And that precedes the modern political party system. So this was what was considered the blue wall. Collectively, these 18 states Add up to 242 electoral college votes. And as you may know, you need 270 electoral college votes to win. So um, this is a great starting point. This was a great starting point for 2016 for Hillary Clinton. This is why I think people like us considered her to be the front runner for that uh, presidential election. Now, as you may know, what happened was she lost states like with, uh, Michigan by 11,000 votes. 22, 23,000 votes in Wisconsin, and uh, 44,000 votes in Pennsylvania. So that blue wall crumbled. Um, Donald Trump did well in some of these upper Midwest uh, Great Lakes states. Um, But why do I think um, Joe Biden is likely to um, win the presidency this time? So we're going to take those blue wall states as an assumption, as a starting point. These are the 18 states that had voted for Democrats from um, 1992 to 2012. We're also going to add, uh, or I'm going to add, um, states that since 2008 have voted for Democrat. Um, so this is 2008, 2012, 2016. They're kind of the new blue wall states, if you will. That's Virginia, Colorado, Nevada, New Mexico, and New Hampshire. And if you add the numbers next to each of those state abbreviations represent how many electoral college votes they have. And so that brings you above the 270 threshold that you need to win the electoral college. So what I wanted to do um, for a moment here is is explain why Donald Trump has such a difficult, why he's considered, even though he's the incumbent, he's currently in office, um, he is um, the current president, but why it looks like he is um, facing an uphill battle in 2020. So a couple things I can do here real quick, just as a starting point. Um, So the original blue wall that I was talking about included Michigan, um, included um, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Minnesota. Am I doing this right? I believe so. So. uh, Yeah, that's good. Looks good. Looks right. But my number should be 242, not 246. Um, New Hampshire. Okay, so we'll just leave it at that. So this is the original blue wall. um, And um, so it gives a good starting point to uh, to Joe Biden. If you add in the new blue wall, Colorado, New Hampshire, uh, Virginia. Notice he's already above that threshold, mm-hmm. Nevada. So even if um, he, he were to somehow lose, I think uh, some of the some of the polling is showing um, uh, New Mexico is a little bit tighter than um, some previous elections. So even if you were to pull out New Mexico, um, it, there's still enough votes there. So. This doesn't even begin to get into. Now, these states are shaded. Why are they shaded the colors that they are the darkest blue based on public opinion polls are showing a strong lead for Joe Biden. The light blue is showing um, a a small to moderate lead for Joe Biden, Similarly on the red side. So the darkest shade of red is strong Republican. The pink shade is leaning um, Republican. So um ac- according to most polling similar to what uh, dr Shrek was talking about with senate races these states here that are yellow are um states that are um, up for grabs that are really hard to predict of, of, of how they're going to lean for the 2020 election however if we were to look at uh recent polling this is from the new york times Um, where they uh, add together many different um, polls from many different, um, they average polls from many different um, sources. So you may know that uh, nationally, Joe Biden has this nine point lead. Um, Last week in my electoral college presentation, I talked about how we really shouldn't focus on that. We should be looking at these individual states. So the blue wall states like Michigan, Wisconsin, um, Pennsylvania, they all show at a minimum Joe Biden up six points. Now these, again, these are polls. Um, There's a week left to vote. People should be still getting out to vote. I have some concerns about mail-in ballots, whether they're going to get um, to the polling you know, county clerks, registers, office and time, whether they're all going to be counted, whether the people who say they're going to vote for Joe Biden or Donald Trump are actually going to show up. Um, but in, in in even some of these battleground states that are up for grabs, they're showing um, like Iowa, Florida, North Carolina, and even Georgia, um, that Joe Biden has a small lead. Now, this site I use for a reason that many state level polls in 2016 were off considerably, particularly in the battleground states in the upper Midwest. They were not perfect in identifying who was actually going to show up on Election Day. And it turned out um, Donald Trump's uh, strongest supporters, whites without a college degree, white males without a college degree, were not fully captured in some of the state level polls. So what this website's doing is basically overcompensating for that. They're basically saying if the current polls were as wrong as they were in 2016, it's possible that a state that Biden has a current 7% lead in, he may lose a state like Wisconsin um, or uh, Iowa. But the point being is he doesn't need them. Even if the state polls were as wrong as they were in 2016, it still shows Biden um, above the 270 threshold. And so these websites, this one's from the New York Times, there's a lot of ones like them, but they're 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 fun to play around with because you can say, you know what, I think um Donald Trump's gonna do well in Pennsylvania again. He's gonna win Pennsylvania. Um, Arizona's looking pretty strong for. Um, Democrats. So I'm gonna put um, Arizona on the Democratic side. Nebraska, Nebraska and Maine are um, states that break their con- um, uh, states into congressional districts. And um, so for Nebraska, there's three congressional districts plus two electoral college votes for the state overall. And so the way that this works is in these three uh, congressional districts. It's possible, it's uh, based on polling. I think uh, Biden has about a seven to 8% lead in the second congressional district in, in um, uh, Nebraska. So you might throw that into the column for Biden. And so even in this scenario, losing Pennsylvania, Biden could still win. Um, you know, maybe I showed Wisconsin going for, you um, um, Donald Trump, and based on polling from 2016, if we were is off, but then you start to look at some of these states like a a Florida or you know a a Georgia um, that potentially have the ability to go towards um, uh, Joe Biden, and so the math is just really difficult for him. So I'd be happy to come back to this in a little bit. I don't want to go too much over my time. But I did want to talk about, um, uh, I'm going to skip that for now, but the the basic point of this slide is to show that back in 2016, many people voted, um, uh, not many people, a disproportionate number of people compared to previous elections voted for third party candidates. In fact, the difference between Clinton and Trump in Michigan, Pennsylvania. In Wisconsin, could all be accounted for by Libertarian and Green Party votes. And this time around, many people who, um, there are still people who are going to vote third party. Um, some of the third party people are now going to vote for Donald Trump, but, you know, Biden's got a two to one advantage among people who voted in 2016 for a third party that are likely to be supporting him in 2020. Despite all that, I think it's important to talk about this is not over, it's polling doesn't, we don't pick presidents based on polls, we pick it based on votes. And so one of the things I really wanna point out is that nationally, um, the the number of whites without a college degree are expected to comprise about 41% of all voters nationally. And um, you may know that that is one of the largest groups of supporters for President Trump, um, particularly white males without a college degree. But um, he polls or he does very well with whites without a college degree. And if you look at some of the battleground states, the states that are up for grabs and some of those blue wall states, it just so happens that each and every one of them has um, a disproportionate, a higher number of whites without a college degree in places like Wisconsin, um, Iowa, Ohio, Michigan, Minnesota, and Pennsylvania. So the idea is that the demographics in those states are more favorable for Donald Trump than the national um, uh, demographics. So that's one reason I wanted to point out that when we look at the national polls, You know, first, we we don't pick our president based on the popular vote. And B, the states that truly are really going to matter. And I would argue that more than anything, Pennsylvania is really, really key. It's uh, uh, argued to be the tipping uh, tipping state for uh, determining who wins the presidency. I don't think it's really going to come down to that, but it really could. Um, So Pennsylvania is a key state to keep your eye on on election uh, night. And then why else might Trump win? Um, Democrats still have um, historically, Democrats have had um, an advantage in registered voters over Republicans. That being said, Republicans have done an excellent job of registering new voters, particularly in battleground states like Florida, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania. They're still a little bit behind, but they have narrowed the gap significantly. Um, If you're interested in looking at that, that's an article from The New York Times, uh, behind in polls, Republicans see a silver lining in voter registrations. And then the last thing that I think I'll talk about before I turn it back over to questions and comments is is Trump, um, his ground game is just um, phenomenal. Um, In 2016, they did a great job. But in 2020, the Biden campaign is is really focusing on advertisements um, on on TV and some digital ads and not really getting out and knocking on doors and um, getting people out the grassroots kind of um, activism of of getting out the vote. According to this one article from uh, Politico. Um, this is back in august that uh, trump had over 2,000 paid staffers in 23 different states there was at least 2 million volunteers making phone calls knocking on doors Um, and the title of that article is about how trump campaigns claims that they're knocking on a million uh, doors a week while biden knocks on zero so again um, the polls are not the the way that we determine our presidency and um, you know if I if I if I played the same game for Trump with making kind of predictions about um, how um, Trump could win reelection, it's basically going back to the 2016 model where he he won Arizona in 2016, he won Pennsylvania in 2016, he won Wisconsin in 2016. So in this case, it's giving Nevada, uh, Michigan, uh, to Democrats. And and this is a path to victory for Donald Trump. So the path is still there. Um, it, it's not over yet. Um, I would point out that we've got just uh, records for early voting. We're already up to nearly uh, 70 million people uh, who have voted. And um, in Texas alone, there's almost 8 million people who have voted early. That's 87% of the total uh, vote totals that they had of all of 2016. I don't wanna hog this discussion. We've got about 18 minutes left, so I'm gonna stop it there and um, turn it back over to my colleagues and um, see what kind of questions
1: we have. Kevin, if I could just... uh... Look at one of the questions here. Uh, this coming from, uh, I want to say it's Med, and uh, asking if, uh, from our experience, do we think that any uh, candidates, the uh, you know whether it's Biden or Trump, whoever wins, is going to go back on their promises for, like in Biden's case, promises for reform, like claiming uh, student debt debt and uh, climate change be uh, will be aided. Um, I think every person who runs for office makes promises. And at some point they have to compromise based on those promises. Uh, Whether it's a Democrat or Republican, they always uh, kind of, you know, right now when they run for office, I I, I liken it to that the, everything's pretty sharp and then they have to round off those sharp edges and dull it once they start to govern. So campaigning and governing are two totally different things. And uh, for somebody like, Joe Biden if he wins, who's left of center, he's not left of left. He still has to kind of work towards the center because I believe if he's going to get elected, it's going to be because of the center. So he can't claim that he's going to like get rid of everybody's student debt or that climate change is going to change tomorrow. He's going to have a government program for tomorrow. He's going to have to like smooth out those edges.
2: There's another question to uh, Kevin. Unless you did, you want to say something first before?
0: No, go ahead, please. I
2: don't know if you guys see it too. Uh, from Thomas, Tom, a uh, president is nominated Supreme Court justice uh, 29 times in an election year. Ten of those times, the part the same party was in charge uh, of both of both branches. Why should it be different? Ten times they all they confirmed the judge. Why should it be different now? Um, you're you're right, um, Tom. I would I wouldn't dispute that. I think that the difference is though this time is that. If, if Ruth Bader Ginsburg had died in July, as opposed to September, I'd be saying the exact same thing, just because the fact that, you know, it's still, whether it's an election year or not, again, the constitution is pretty clear. It doesn't matter whether, it doesn't matter if it's the this, this Senate's controlled by Democrats or Republicans or whatever, it says the president's got the ability to be able to appoint um, a justice and the Senate can confirm that justice. Now, the difference is though, at this point, people are already voting. So at the end of September, When Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, the polls in some states were already open. So if you're going to go with the idea that, you know, why it's different from previous ones, you know, one can make the argument that if because the president has got it, and again, they has got the ability to appoint these justices that have such a huge impact on the country and people are paying such attention to it, that perhaps then allow that next president, whoever wins, whether it's Trump or Biden to determine that. So hopefully that answered your question.
0: Yeah. And I, I'll just, Add oh, to, sorry. Oh, to sorry Mary. No, Mary's point is is well taken, and I see two comments. One about why do people say that the uh, nomination of uh, of Coney Barrett was unconstitutional when it's constitutional, um, and then I'm going to combine that with the question about what do you think about limiting those lifetime positions to a term of X number of years. Um, so yes, it's not constitutional, or I'm sorry, it's not unconstitutional um, grace, and that's a great point. It's it's more back to the norms, and again, I would just you know remind you of of all of the comments that um, Republicans made um, back in in 2016, um, saying that you know. that they were not going to allow uh, Obama to have uh, his his Supreme Court nominee um, have any hearings. And on top of that, there was like 120 federal court appointees who also never had any hearings either. Um, So it's not that it's not constitutional. It's just it's breaking norms. So if we're okay with breaking norms, then I think we really need to, you know, (laughs) then when the shoe's on the other foot, in in Democrats, potentially, and somebody asked about, you know, making predictions, I think Donald Trump is going to lose election, I think, I think Republicans are going to lose the Senate. And that allows Democrats to, you know, with the House, Senate, and presidency, um, to break some norms themselves. So, um, you know, that's the whole importance with norms is that once they're broken, then, all sides, both sides can continue to violate them in kind of a downward spiral. Um, so I think that's something worth pointing out. And then to the excellent question about lifetime appointments.
2: Kevin, can I have one quick thing on what you just sure. said? I'm so sorry, Andrew, but just the idea that the court in recent years, it seems like has been stripped of legitimacy and has been viewed more and more in political terms. And I think that's kind of what you're alluding to. And so if this is one more kind of nail in the coffin of that idea that the court is now seen as a political body where the court, has always been kind of quiet off to the side. You, don't, you know, they don't. They're not on TV. They're not being interviewed. There are no cameras allowed, and the, there's a reason for that. So, if we're dragging the court into this kind of political process, that further undermines the legitimacy of the court and the way it's viewed. So, I'm sorry. I mean, it. you yeah. okay. No, I,
0: I think it's the first nominee who didn't get a single vote from the opposing party. Uh, There was 52 people, you know, and and keep in mind, in the past, you would need 60 votes, um, because you used to be able to filibuster Supreme Court nominees. Of course, that changed um, under McConnell. And so there was would have been zero chance that she would have been nominated if they didn't break that norm of um, ending the filibuster. Um, for Supreme Court nominees, and two of those fifty-two senators who are Republican who voted in favor of her actually were appointed to the to, to the Senate and, and weren't democratically elected senators. Um, and and you know the, we're the only country that does it this way. We shouldn't be you know relying on you know somebody's health in the Supreme Court of you know the the random nature of when somebody you know, passes away determining how many Supreme Court picks a president gets. You know, no other country does it this way. Typically, they have a 15-year term and, you know, every two to four years, um, they select a new Supreme Court member. Um, and, And A, no other country really has the power. Our Supreme Court has more power than nearly any other judicial branch in any other country because they can overturn laws that passed overwhelmingly in the house in the senate that were signed into law by the president so it's just an enormous amount of power for nine people to have and many of our cases have been five four six three so for those reasons i think we really need to look at reform and potentially changing these lifetime appointments to to being you know limited to maybe 15 years or 20 years or something like that
1: um so
0: I'll leave it at that at this point um, with, with that particular question. And
1: Kevin, you mentioned that two of the senators who were uh, appointed to their position, Martha McSally and Kelly Loeffler, uh, are in uh, some pretty challenging elections uh, this time around. And uh, one of the things that I wanted to mention about Loeffler out of um, out of Georgia there are two, and this normally doesn't happen. There are two races for the United States Senate taking place. One is held by David Perdue, who's running against John Ossoff, a Democrat. Uh, that was the one that happens. That was the seat that took place every six years. But this past summer, I believe, uh, Johnny Isaacson, a senator from Georgia, Republican, retired due to health. Uh, Trump, filled the position with uh, Kelly Loeffler, and uh, she has been a uh, a, pretty much a tried and true lieutenant for uh, President Trump. So there are two races that are going on at the same time. In this special election, uh, there are a list of candidates on the ballot. It's not a one-on-one, but in both cases, if a candidate running for office in Georgia does not receive 50% of the vote plus one, the first time around, there has to be a runoff between the person who finished first and the person who finished second. So in both of those cases, where uh, I should say, yeah, actually in both of those cases, you might end up getting a situation where you have two runoffs that will take place in January, I believe. Uh, at least with the the seat held by Kelly Loeffler, a Democrat is currently in the lead in the polls in that race. And then there are two Republicans Loeffler and Representative Doug Collins, who are running against each other, essentially to be that opponent of Reverend uh, Warnock. Uh, I think it's Ralph Warnock. So um, you have that challenge going on, too. So one of the things that we always wait for, we wait for the results on Election Day. and We want to know who's going to be in charge and who's going to have the majority. We may not know that until we figure out what's going on with Georgia.
0: Yeah, and to that point, Darren, um, from, you know, it looks like both Democrats are slightly ahead, but it, I think that um, it's going to, they're both going to go in the runoff territory, and the thing that we need to keep in mind with that is the people who vote, voter turnouts much higher in November on, you know, national election and these special runoffs um typically have a, a lot lower voter turnout and and of course then it'd just be the top two candidates so if democrats can't get above the 50 percent threshold in this uh first election in november i think they're in trouble come january somebody asked I, I this question wouldn't it have been nice if republicans would have nominated merrick garland for merrick garland for rbg and the reason that makes me, yeah, I, I think it would be back to the political norms, you know, I think there is a little bit, I if I could get in the minds of Republicans, I think it was probably hard for them to have Antonin Scalia's C, the most conservative member of the Supreme Court, replaced by Barack Obama. They just didn't want that. <laughs> and they were willing to break some norms to say, wait, we're going to wait 10 months and see who wins this election and take the chance um that that a republican wins um and so i think similarly democrats have a hard time with rbg uh ruth bader ginsburg being replaced by arguably the second most member a a conservative member of the supreme court with amy coney barrett so yeah that could have been a, a good olive branch first of all Merrick garland's older um so he won't be on the supreme court for long he wouldn't have been on the Supreme Court for long, and he is somebody who two different presidents of uh, Republican and Democratic parties had considered strongly for the Supreme Court. Um, Darren, are you able to address this question about Kim Fox, Um and then um, Lipinski's, you want to talk about that question at all?
1: Yeah, I think there's a, the question is, is there a chance that Kim Fox, the uh, Cook County State's attorney, uh, could lose her reelection bid, and then um, uh, Congressman Lipinski had lost in the primary to uh, Marie Newman, who's uh, pretty much a more, I'm using the words here, a more liberal opponent. Is this a safe seat for Democrats, or should they be concerned? It's a safe seat for Democrats, that's for sure uh it's it's drawn up that way it's gerrymandered for a democrat to win whether uh the democrat is left of left or left of center or conservative uh leaning uh as long as there's a d next to the name that person's going to win um uh, i think kim fox would have this is probably going to be uh, a challenge for her, but i don't think she's going to lose her reelection bid i think part of the reason is she has a strong voting base in chicago and that's always going to outvote the suburbs so in order for uh, a republican to win in a like a down year for republicans all of the the stars have to align at the same time and i think kim Fox is buoyed by the fact that you're going to have a strong democratic turnout this time around
0: one of the things I, I wanted to point out: we have a question about foreign policy implications, and um, uh, Professor Fafli Stunkel and I are in two weeks are going to talk about implications of how the new um, the, the election results are going to impact foreign policy. So I am going to save uh, comments about implications uh, for, for for next time. But just just in passing, I'll say. You know, I think um, Joe Biden's more into alliances, more working with allies, the traditional allies, Germany, you know, UK, European Union, NATO, than um, President Trump um, has been in his four years. Uh, I think with the four minutes we have left, it'd be great if there's any final questions from people, but I think I'd give each panel member one thing to um, end on and, and and I'll go first and I just wanted to give kudos to my colleague uh, Mary because I remember a, a department meeting maybe back in February, March where we were talking about um, uh, Mary you had mentioned an October surprise with COVID um, and at that point I didn't expect COVID to still be you know, <laughs> to the point that it still is, and in how it's going to impact. I mean, I think that Donald Trump is being severely hurt in his re-election bid because of COVID, because of the number of deaths, because of its economic impact. But then there's these just kind of second, third level implications that you just never quite know about. And this is from an article in um, the Washington Post today: New voters um, converge to make some belt competitive, and In the four years since the last presidential election, at least 2 million people have moved to Texas, many of them Democrats from places like California, Florida, New York, and Illinois. Um, And then, of course, 800,000 young Latino Americans have turned 18. A wave of new immigrants have been nationalized. More than 3 million Texans have been registered to vote. But my point to Mary's is just, we don't know how how many Silicon Valley workers were able to move from California because they can now work remotely and maybe they're living in battleground states like in Arizona. Um, and similarly places, in, you know, I've heard of people moving from Illinois to, to Michigan or to Wisconsin, and and I don't have any data to back this up, but it is, it is. I just want to give kudos to Mary to pointing this out that this, uh, clearly COVID is still um, having a major impact on our election. And at, at this point, I'll turn it back to Mary and Darren with their final comments that they'd like to make.
2: Sure. Um, Darren, you want to go first? Or... Oh, Where I'll just
1: You first? can go, Mary. That's fine. No, no. That's okay. Go ahead. Okay. I, all I was going to say is I just wanted to thank people for tuning in today. Uh, I want to make sure that they go out and vote. I, I like the, uh, I always enjoy uh, serving on this panel with uh, Professors okay. Navertil and Faflis Dunkel. Uh, I think this is the first time that none of us actually made a prediction um, <laughs> for good reason. Uh, But I suggest that we uh, look at the polls and we uh, take it for what it's worth currently and follow through and participate on Election Day, because that's the only poll number, as they say, that really counts. Mm -hmm. So thank you very much.
2: Thank you. And thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Darren. I echo everything that that uh, Darren just said. I probably should have maybe gone first then, because Darren said something sunny, and I'm gonna say something that's kind of like not so sunny. Um I wanted to just mention the idea of, of something that concerns me that I was hoping maybe we could talk about and just the level of 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 how disinformation and information literacy is also impacting our elections moving forward. Uh, I came across an alarming statistic about how many people now believe about 25% of Americans are actually now believing in some aspect of the QAnon conspiracy theory. And uh, as an educator, that just Scares me. I think more than, than than COVID and a lot of other things do because if we are not able to believe information that we see in front of us, uh, then how can we possibly know how to vote and and for whom to vote? Um, and I I just I want to just I think caution everyone to try to be as aware as possible of what you're reading and where you're reading it. And if something just seems kind of funny, then it probably is. And maybe research further on it and try to read as many different things about it as you possibly can to expand that kind of base of knowledge. So and I also love working with you guys. Miss you both. <laughs>
0: uh, and uh, this has just been awesome for me to be able to uh, work with both of you in this even in this format. Um, it makes it feel normal again. And I know we're at my uh, time limit and and um, I let me just say this, I want to thank our panel members. And if anybody needs to leave, you can. Um, I do see a few more questions and um, and I'm, I've am i got time. So
1: you know, Darren, if
0: you need to go, you need to go. Mary, you need to go, you need to go. But Pretty one soon. of the questions, um, I'll give you a moment to respond to this, uh, Mary, in just a minute about just explaining what QAnon is. And then somebody brought up about Graham Graham Harrison race, um, you know personally. Like Darren said, we're not great at predictions. Um, J- Jamie Harrison has raised over a hundred million dollars, and and part of this goes back to the Supreme Court. And a lot of that money was raised after the death of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and a lot of Democrats are just really really upset about the way that the Supreme Court um, nominees have been handled in the last four years, and so. I money is very helpful, and wow. I think Harrison's going to do very well. I would be very surprised to see him beat um, Lindsey Graham. Yeah.
1: Um, and yeah, going along with that, I, I mean, I lived back in the day, I lived pretty much on the North Carolina South Carolina border, and I was pretty much closer to living near the Greenville Spartanburg area than I was Charlotte or Asheville, North Carolina, or as a friend of mine said that where I lived in North Carolina was the sticks, but uh, (laughs) South Carolina, there's an upstate portion. And then there's that Myrtle beach portion that everybody talks about. And there's what we have in between the upstate is very, very, very conservative. Uh, It's, it's more conservative than let's say that, that downstate uh eastern portion of of myrtle beach if if lindsey graham is going to pull it out he's going to get that area that's kind of like more on the border of georgia than it is on the border of the atlantic ocean so you could like uh, professor navratil is saying you can pour 100 million dollars into a state if there's a chance with that 100 million there would be a chance but uh, at the same time you're talking about a conservative state regardless of how much money is spent. Yeah,
0: Yeah, definitely. Barry, do you want to explain QAnon?
1: Yeah, I'd like to see see this
2: one. Yeah, do I want to explain it? No. Will I? Yes. (laughs) So, okay. So, um, and I'm going to start this
1: off. It's Q-A-N-O-N, just to clarify that was on there. Thank you. I'm
2: glad that you thank you for saying that. So a couple of years ago on a website called the Floor Channel, um, somebody claiming to be this anonymous sourcing Q basically began this this started pushing these different theories um, that that Donald Trump was essentially the savior who was going to rescue. And you guys jump in if I'm if I'm um, saying this, any of this incorrectly, because uh, there's a lot of it here um, was going to jump in to kind of to save, save basically us from. A lot of different things that range from Democrats being involved in the child sex trafficking ring, um, people like Oprah, Tom Hanks, celebrities of that nature. Um, So the child sex trafficking, there's more to it. I'm I'm missing something. There's Uh, uh, pedophilia. Pedophilia. Right, Just the, in P- the yeah, wayfair even being a, a, a yeah pizza P- P- ring, um, right? PizzaGate in 2016 is probably the, the, one of the, the the scariest results of that. And actually, that started even before this, but um, PizzaGate was basically where a man was believed that a child sex trafficking ring was being run out of this pizza parlor in Washington, D- outside of Washington DC, that Hillary Clinton was running, and drove over there with an AR-15 basically created a suicide video to his daughters. And it's like heartbreaking to watch because he's like, he earnestly believed that these poor children were being trafficked in a basement inside of this uh, pizza parlor. And he goes, gets to the pizza parlor and fires some shots. Luckily does not hurt or kill anybody. And when the police rustle him to the ground, he basically is bewildered and says, I, I thought there was a basement. Where was the basement? Because there was no basement. And so it's this idea of of, you know, Getting people to believe that a, 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 a members of a political party, of a mainstream political party, are engaged in child sex trafficking and pedophilia. Um, so that's a little scary to me, the idea that whether you like Joe Biden or don't like Joe Biden or want to vote for him or not, the idea that he's that he's, this, that he's a, um, a pedophile is is just a, a little bit frightening to me and that so many people believe it. And that we've got members of Congress possibly, I think that two, I believe, potential members of Congress coming in who believe in QAnon. Um, That's also been, and I'm probably peddling it more now, right, by talking about it, but just to give you an idea that in in March, only um, like three quarters of Americans had never heard of QAnon, and by September, 50% of Americans had had never heard of it. Well, now that number is even, you know, pretty much a lot of people have heard of it now. Um, So that's rather frightening, and the, the fact that the president also retweets a lot of the things that they that they push, and then kind of, uh, you know, backpedals and says, well, I don't know who they are, just we're against pedophilia, um, and, you know, when he's questioned on it at, at uh, his, his town hall, it's frightening. And again, we all engage in information literacy. We want our students to be, able to, to, to be able to decipher what is real from what is not, what is factual from what is what is just completely utter rubbish. And this is complete utter rubbish, but you're seeing relationships being, I mean, people who are, you'd never believe that would, that would go down this rabbit hole of believing stuff like this that do, you know, my brother's an educator at a school around the area. I'm not going to, I'm not going to say where, but um, uh, one of his, one of his co-teachers believes in it. And he was just floored. He was like, I, cu- I couldn't believe that, that, you know, this person believed it.
1: And there is one, there will be one Congresswoman who will be coming in to this, you know, new term from Georgia because she is running unopposed. Yeah. Where her supporters harassed the Democratic candidates so much that he not only quit the race, he moved out of the state because he was so tired of it. And there was another one, as, as Mary uh, pointed out, that uh, – there is a republican candidate in colorado who defeated a five-term republican in the primary and and got her big you know push forward because she was a qanon follower mm-hmm. and the republicans in a way have become not only a minority party but they've become the party of housing conspiracy theorists yeah, yeah.
0: so i th- I don't have a lot more to add to that, other than just saying that we, as citizens, it, we have so much information that we have access to, and a lot of it is good information. And there's a lot of great reporting going out there, especially from traditional journalists um, associated with newspapers, um, or broadcast journalists. A lot of great websites out there, and there's a lot of garbage out there. A lot of a lot of it's peddled on on social media. And it's up to us to be good consumers of information to make sure before we like or share something that we verify it. And the the cool thing is, is there's a lot of great fact checking sites out there and um, um, factcheck.org and and Snopes and all kinds of others. So, you know, do a little research. Um, And I and I, you know, this is a unique scenario Um, we have a global plan pandemic. We have really uh, challenging economy, many people who are out of work. Um, there's b- been a lot of racial tensions um, that you know have always been there in the United States, but have clearly um, increased significantly over the last, over the summer. Um, and, and I could go on, I'm just, this is a really key election. Um, at all levels, and I I really hope that people educate themselves, and like both of you have mentioned, vote, and um, make sure that we focus on the big picture issues, and I've been inspired. The lines, it's it's simultaneously inspiring and infuriating that people have to wait nine hours in line to to vote, but the fact that they still do that, the Mm -hmm. fact that they stay in line, they... (laughs) Um, Some people are bringing food and playing music for the people staying in line. It's really encouraging. Um, And and just people fought and died for this, you know, not just in foreign wars, but, you know, it's been a work in progress. Uh, Initially, only wealthy white males could participate in this election system. And over the course of our 200 and some years, we've expanded the right to vote. But others had to fight really, really hard for us to be able to vote. So um, exercise your right to vote, and then and in this case, make sure your friends and family members vote too. Um, do what you can. It's not just about yourself voting, it's trying to get others to vote as well. Um, and if anybody would like to um, help with that, um, I, I'd be happy to share resources of how you might be able to get involved. I'm just gonna share my email address at the bottom. We still have thirty-seven attendees. Nobody is required to stay on, but if the panelists want to keep up and um, ask any other questions, I have to let my dog
2: to go to the bathroom. But as long as you guys don't mind if I take it with me, um, it's all good with me because he's been poor. He's been ringing the bell.
0: <laughs> We're gonna stop the video, right, Mary?
1: Yeah, well,
2: you, I won't. I won't let you watch him,
1: but. Uh, well, so the other thing you mentioned, Kevin, not only about voting, but since we're all like in tight quarters and everybody's home with their children, it's also a nice time that if you have children, if you have uh, people living, you younger brothers and sisters, uh, teach them about the process too. You know, especially if you have a ballot that's coming to your house, show your kids, show your little brother, your little sister, you know, and, and teach them about how everything works. Uh, I, I think the civic responsibility aspect, I don't know if we learn about it as much as we should at the lower levels, you know, of school. Uh, it shouldn't be that the first time we pay attention to it is when we hit college.
2: Right, but, absolutely. Yeah. Are there, no, more, are there more questions coming in, Kevin, from people?
0: No, I don't see any other questions. <laughs> so, um, um, does the Electoral College serve the, the country? Well, I would happy I did a hour and 15. Oh, minutes yeah. on this last week. That was fantastic. To, by the way, I'm going to say, uh, I'd be happy to to, to give a, other perspectives on this first. Um, Darren, M- Mary, is there anything you'd like to say about the Electoral College?
2: Um, I mean, besides the stuff, I don't want to cover a lot of the things that you covered, because you covered it so well last time, but just the, the idea that it definitely seems like it's out of out of touch with the, the current reality of where we're at, of the electorate, where we're at, the idea that Wyoming can account for, you know, was it what one for uh, uh, out of 100 something thousand votes and a person in California is one out of 700,000 votes, one electoral vote. So definitely, it would seem to be that that some reform is definitely needed. Sorry, that's a really bad response. Yeah, I'll just no. let you take it away and I'll look after my dog. <laughs> I'm trying to mute my video and I can't. <laughs> uh,
0: Darren, was there anything you wanted to say about you that? Know,
1: I've, you know, I, I don't necessarily study it as much as others, but if there was one reform, I, I wouldn't have a problem looking into how Nebraska and Maine do it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah I so Darren's referring to um, states that do an electoral split based on their congressional districts. And um, it just so happened Maine for the first time in 2016 um, split their Electoral College vote and Nebraska did it in 2008. And and, and looks like they're going to do that ag- again here in 2020. And, uh, um, but I just want to show an example of that, because this is really what the framers intended. So you look at a state and you every state gets its equivalent of votes um, as it does as representation in the Congress. So we have two senators and then you have at least one House of Representative, and potentially more. So Nebraska happens to have five members of Congress, two senators and three House of Representatives. And EACH OF THESE DIFFERENT COLORS REPRESENTS A DIFFERENT CONGRESSIONAL DISTRICT AND THE EXPECTATION FOR 2020 IS THAT TRUMP WILL WIN THE STATE OVERALL AND HE'S LIKELY TO EASILY WIN THE THIRD DISTRICT THAT IS WESTERN NEBRASKA AND HE WILL LIKELY EASILY WIN THE FIRST DISTRICT THAT IS uh, PART OF THE EASTERN PART OF THE STATE BUT THE SECOND DISTRICT IS GEOGRAPHICALLY SMALL BECAUSE IT ENCOMPASSES Omaha. And um, another uh, so Omaha is in Douglas County and then Sarpy County is part of the suburbs, and we don't have great polling. But the fact that uh, Trump and Biden are both making visits to Omaha shows uh, in the final week of the campaign, even though Omaha, that one district is like half a percent of the necessary total to win the presidency, it's showing that um, that they care about that district, to, to that they may need it to win to get to the 270 threshold. And to Darren's point, if every state did this, it would mean that we couldn't take a stake for granted like Illinois and knowing that all of its electoral college votes are going to go to the Democrat because it looks like they're going to win by 10%. Instead, candidates would have to campaign in perhaps individual districts that might be competitive like a second district in Omaha, or I think Darren mentioned it earlier, is it the 13th district in Illinois with uh, Rodney Davis and Betsy um, Lundgren? I, f- I forget her last name. and Lundgren? Yeah, thank you. Um, th- these more swing districts um, that are, you know, swingy because they we don't know if they're Democrat or Republican. Um, and, and last week, what I was saying, I don't think it serves us very well at mm. all for, for many different reasons. Mary talked about how, um, you know, in Wyoming, you really get four times the power as, as voters in places like Texas, California, and Florida. Um, the idea that the, the candidate with the most votes has, has lost five different times. Um, and one of the biggest problems that I see is is candidates really just spend um, most of their attention in a handful of states. In 2016, it was Ohio, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and Florida. Um, this year, it's in particular um, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and uh, Wisconsin. But why are so many other states not getting any presidential visits? The really big states like Texas and California, Illinois, as well as the least populated states—you know—they're just taken for granted because we know how their electoral college votes are going to be distributed in this winner-take-all system. So, to um, to end, and you know, at least I could talk all day about the Electoral College, but I think it's a really uh, crappy way of electing the president. No other country has borrowed this, and um, the framers wouldn't recognize it as it is today. So. Um,
2: yeah. and- you raised a really good point, Kevin, last week that resonated with me. Just the idea that the founding fathers, we have this image of the founding fathers as being these saints, right? That everything they did was sacrosanct, that it was sacred, that we cannot ever question anything that they did. Um, and, you know, they were men who were flawed and they recognized that that, that maybe what they were doing, that, that's why the Constitution says a more perfect union. It doesn't say it's perfect we're done, you know, toss it out the window. It says that we're, we might still have some things we need to fix. So there's, I, I it always bothers me where this idea that, that nothing can ever be amended or changed because it's written that way. Um, you know, I, it's, if something's broke, you got to fix it. If it's not working too well, it's got to, if we have how many elections now in the past 20 years where, um, you know, we've had two elections in 20 years where the person who's won the popular vote has not won an electoral college. So. Yeah, I think There are a lot of people who no, feel the is. same way, regardless if it was a Democrat or a Republican, it doesn't seem particularly Democratic.
0: When I think what I was pointing out last week is if Texas barely goes Democrat, whether it's 2020 or 2024 or Georgia barely goes Democrat and Florida barely goes Democrat, um, you could start to see the same. You know, Republicans are going to uh, potentially be in a situation where they could win the popular vote, um, but lose the Electoral College vote if states like Texas go Democrat and all off the top of my head, 37 Electoral College votes go go for a Democrat. Um, so um, it just is a very um, messy and undemocratic and unfair way of electing a president. All
1: right.
0: All um, right. I don't see any other questions, and uh, I could, uh, Darren and Mary, we could always talk uh, <laughs> ourselves separately. So I don't want to force anybody to be on this any longer than they need to be. But if there's not any other questions, I, I really want to thank everybody for taking the time to attend this event today. Um, I want to thank uh, Amanda and Multimedia and everybody who's helped. Um, Uh, edit these videos and are going to help us share it uh, with a wider audience afterwards. And again, thank you for my uh, panelists. um, Dr. Thank you,
2: Kevin. Thanks for doing it. This is great. Thank you for hosting it.
1: Yeah, thank you for putting it together, Kevin. Thank you. All right. Thanks, everyone.